Hear the word of our Lord from Luke chapter 1, beginning in the 46th verse. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. This is the gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. I got an email recently that says this, God bless you and your work. I've got a couple of random, unrelated questions and requests for you when you have the time. And he said, in the month of December, I wondered if you might consider doing a VLL or a single episode on the truth, beauty, depth, and historicity and joy of Christmas. He said he was raised under the heavy and miserable yoke of Armstrongism, where Christmas was ignorantly and severely mocked and rejected. So, at his age, which is a little bit more advanced, he's got no fondness for the holiday. He was hoping to understand and appreciate it from a purely spiritual perspective. He says, I think in addition to my childhood, the way Christmas is currently celebrated by the world, hypercapitalist consumerism and greed on steroid, leaves a bad taste in his mouth, he says. And we know that a certain people have done all they can to remove any mention of or reverence for Christ from the holiday. Just a thought. And it's a thought that I share for the most part. Let's get into Christmas. Every year we should do this. And I know there might be some eye rolling because people will say, Pastor, you've talked about Christmas every year. And my response is, yes, it's Advent. Welcome to the church year, dude. Let's celebrate and talk about it and remember and rejoice. So the first thing we want to bring up regarding Christmas is that all of the traditions that we call hyper-consumerist or over-commercialized stem from something good. They find their root in good Christmas practices. For instance, we just read the Magnificat to start off this recording. Mary sings a song. She sings a Christmas song about the meaning of Christ coming to the earth and the wonderful things that God has done for her. The virgin with child bringing the Messiah into the world. Our Lord keeping his promises that he has made ever since Genesis 3 verse 15. When you and I sing Christmas carols, when we sing Christmas hymns, even if it's something as silly as Hark Hear the Bells or 
if we sing Silent Night, Holy Night, we are singing along with the saints that have been singing Christmas songs since before Christ was born. Christmas music is a Christian practice. Now, of course, maybe we shouldn't be singing jingle bells in church, am I right? I mean, that's silly and stupid. But there are other traditions that we see reflected in secular culture that maybe they don't feel so Christian-y, like singing hymns and Christmas carols and everything. How about Christmas trees? Well, Martin Luther gave us the Christmas tree. He's the first guy to have taken a chopped down tree, put it in his house, put candles on it, and said, each one of these lit candles represents a promise that God has given us by his word, the promise of salvation, the promise of a savior, the promise of the birth of the Messiah, the promise of the return of our Lord Christ. Each one of these is a promise for us. And so the Christmas tree became Christian tradition. It was for 500 years. Now, for everybody listening, please don't use candles. That's a fire hazard. Putting a bunch of candles in a dead, drying tree is a bad idea. But the point still stands that this is a Christian practice that is intended to increase our devotion, not just make us think about presence. Now we continue on. Speaking of presents, to the giving of gifts on Christmas. We look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 7. Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. On Christmas, we give each other gifts. Why? Because our Lord Christ is God. He does not need our gifts. In fact, the presents that the wise men give to our Lord Christ were probably used by Mary and Joseph to help them survive as they went to Egypt. They needed these things to live off of, especially the gold and then the frankincense and the myrrh they could sell and they could use as needed. So these are presents that are not necessarily for Christ our Lord, but for each other because God does not need your good works. He doesn't need your presence. Your neighbor does. God himself gives himself to us, and he expects us to turn around and love our neighbors in response. So even giving presents is a good and Christian practice for the remembrance of the Lord Christ's nativity, his birth, his incarnation. When we do things associated with a holiday, and we do them 
understanding that it is devotional, then we are closer to God. Because everything that you and I do, whether that is getting up in the morning, eating a meal, going to work, if we understand that as a part of the life that God has given us, including celebrating holidays, that will help our sanctification. All of the Christmas traditions that we have are based on the Bible, at least the original ones. I can't speak for the Japanese people that go to KFC for some reason on Christmas Day. Apparently it's a big Christmas tradition over there, but hey, you know, they can enjoy their family time. But all of them are for you and I to participate. Does that mean that we have to go get a second mortgage on the house to afford Christmas presents for Christmas? No. Does that mean that we have to sing stupid songs like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer? Do we have to sit there watching Rankin-Bass stop-motion animation movies? No. But we can still have a good time. Have Christians forgotten that having a good time on a holiday isn't a bad thing? Like, this is where various cults like the Armstrongists and the Jehovah's Witnesses and the extreme hyper-fundy Baptists out there get this idea wrong. You see, when we celebrate Christmas, we are with the entirety of the church celebrating who? Jesus. And are we doing that together? Absolutely. In one spirit, with one mind, we are celebrating that our Lord Christ was born for us. And we'll get into the deep theology there and why that's so important in a little bit. But for a second, let's just assume that all of the conspiracy theories regarding Christmas are true. The Christmas tree wasn't invented by Martin Luther and it didn't have its basis in the paradise trees of Europe. Oh, no, no, no. The Christmas tree actually comes from the Yule log or something, and it was based on Germanic paganism. So, by having a Christmas tree, am I secretly losing my faith? I still believe in Jesus. I'm still celebrating Jesus. Oh, but let's say giving gifts. Ah, oh, no, that is an ancient pagan tradition as well. Coming from Saturnalia, the Roman pagan holiday that somehow just so happens to coincide with the latter part of the month of December. Saturnalia, that's the ticket, right? Let's assume for just half a second that these wild theories are all correct. And when you celebrate Christmas, you are doing similar things to what ancient pagans did. Does that make it evil? No. Does that mean you lose your salvation because you're accidentally performing witchcraft? No, that is chickism. Another couple of tracks on the VLP SoundCloud where we go over that. It does not matter what you do. At some point, a pagan has done it in some religious observance. Have you eaten food? some point a pagan has done that. Have you drank water? At some point a pagan has done that in their rituals. No matter what you do, even if you work out, there are 
literal cults to strength that have been around for thousands of years, like the Ankara cult of strength and combat in India, or the boxing and weightlifting cults in ancient Greece. That's a thing. Does that mean every time I pick up a kettlebell, I'm accidentally worshipping Mars, the god of war, or something? No. But we get this idea about Christmas that we don't want people to celebrate the holiday, and we need an excuse to make them stop doing it, so we're going to say that they're dropping their salvation like a coin falling out of their wallet, a total oopsie, an accident, and that's how easy it is to be damned. Oh, you did down dog to stretch out your back. <laughs> Looks like you were worshiping ancient Hindu deities. You're possessed by a demon. You're going to hell. Yeah, it's silliness. We need to embrace the freedom we have in Christ and to celebrate these traditions without consciences bound. But let's say maybe you do feel your conscience bound. You spent decades in this uh, cult here where it was difficult to not associate Christmas traditions with sin or with some sort of pagan practice. And even if you rationally, mentally understand that that's not the case and it's perfectly okay to give somebody a Christmas present, you still want to go into the actual theology of it. That is what is more important. And, you know, honestly, you're right. More important than the observance of the holiday is the reason for the holiday itself. What makes Christmas such a big deal? From Genesis chapter 31, He gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. Here God gives the capital L law, the covenant to Moses, and thereby to the children of Israel, written not with the finger of man, not with the chisel of a human being, but by the will of God, these tablets, with their writing, came into being. Let's take a look at another covenant our Lord gives in Genesis chapter 15, starting in verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. 
when the sun had gone down, and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire-pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So we have two covenants here, the law of Moses and a covenant made with Abram, later known as Abraham, that God gives unilaterally. Now these are two very different covenants. The law was a bilateral agreement, two parties in agreement, but God is the one who writes it up. God is the one who makes the covenant. And here in Genesis 15, we see a unilateral covenant between two parties in which one party makes promises to the other. In both cases, God is the one providing and making the covenant happen. Now, in the Old Testament, there is a moment in which God promises a new covenant to his people, to those who believe in him. Hear the word of our Lord from Jeremiah 31, beginning in the 31st verse. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So God tells the children of Israel and Judah, even after the abolition of the nation of Israel, there was only the southern kingdom of Judah at this time, that there is going to be a new covenant that is not based on outward observance of the law, but the witness of the law in the heart and the individual being transformed by the forgiveness of their sins. Sound familiar? Yes, this is the prophet Jeremiah prophesying the gospel about 600 years before Christ died on a cross for us. But about this covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, those tablets with the Ten Commandments, that was given to the children of Israel by God with his finger writing on the stone. The covenant given to Abram, God passed through the remains of those animals. It was a single being walking through those remains, meaning this was a covenant not made by Abraham and God, but just by God himself. When it comes to covenants between God and man, God is the one making the covenants, not man. Now, how shall we describe the new covenant? How does God make this new covenant with us? 
Well, let's read from Matthew chapter 26, beginning in the 26th verse. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Christ institutes communion as a covenant renewal precisely because his blood is the new covenant. More succinctly, Christ is the new covenant for us. Now think about this. When we think of a covenant between God and man, why is it so important that God be the one who gives these covenants to us? Why is it that he is the one to give the law? Why is it that our Lord is the one to give the gospel? Well, in particular, it's because he is God and we are not. We are fallen, sinful beings, poor, miserable sinners. We don't have anything to bring to the table, and Scripture attests that we cannot tell God what to do or say to him, what are you doing? A covenant must come from God. And indeed, this includes when the covenant is a who, not a what. So we read from Isaiah chapter 7. Beginning in the 10th verse, again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which we understand means God with us. He shall eat curds and honey, and when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, for before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. A virgin shall be with child. There will be a virgin birth. A miraculous birth without a human father. God will father this child. And what does that mean? That means that mankind did not bring this child to being. Because this child, this Christ, is the new covenant himself. The birth of our Lord Jesus is proof positive that God kept his promises. That he kept his promise that he started all the way back in Genesis 3.15, where the seed of the woman, not the seed of a man, would be there to crush the head of the serpent. To declare war on the seed of the serpent, which is original sin within us. To be the seed of Abraham promised to him in Genesis chapter 12 the seed by which all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We rejoice in Christmas because God kept his promise. 
to give us an everlasting covenant. Now think about this. The new covenant is a who, not a what. And unlike other covenants among men, it is not temporary. Unlike the law of Moses, it is not something that is eventually abolished. No, to the contrary, because this who is eternal, this new covenant is eternal. From John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And we see from verse 14 on, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Christmas is a remembrance of that one time God himself showed up to be a covenant for you. Where God himself says, if you ever want to know where is God, how do I know that he cares about me, that he's not some aloof clockmaker God or watchmaker deity from the deist perspective, that he's actually involved, well, you see Jesus Christ, who went to the cross for you, who was born in a dirty, filthy little manger for you. I'm not going to appeal to the sheer magnificence of God arriving on earth with a human nature, which again we will get into. Obviously that's the case. Christ himself, being the second person of the Trinity, has every single right to receive our adoration and worship just for showing up. But the glory of it, the real treasure of this in our hearts, is that he showed up for you, for a new covenant that spanned the entire world. Anybody in the entire world, no matter who they are, can hear the words of the gospel, receive the forgiveness of their sins by faith in Jesus, and live eternally. He was born so that death may one day be abolished. That's something to cherish. So much so that for a very long time, our calendars have been split between B.C. and A.D. on account of this singular birth when Christ himself, God himself, showed up for our deliverance. It is amazing. And the people surrounding Mary, and Mary herself, they all understood how amazing this was because they end up just bursting into song, praising God for this. They understood 
the salvific power in the good news with this incarnation. And we call it the incarnation because that is exactly what happened. God himself, second person of the Trinity, added a human nature to himself. Now let's talk about that. At the incarnation, this is something we celebrate in Christmas, someone mysterious shows up. Someone that is different, our Lord Jesus. How is he different? He is fully human. He has feet, hands, knees, arms and legs, a stomach. He has a beard. He has eyes and ears and a nose and a mouth and teeth. He gets hungry. He gets thirsty. He gets sleepy. He can be exhausted from a day full of work with sweat coming off of his brow doing the labors of a carpenter. Our Lord Jesus could be tempted. Now whether or not it was possible for him to sin is an argument for the theologians, whether Christ was peccable or impeccable. But he was, and is, fully human. But at the same time, he's fully God, divine, omnipotent. He knows the thoughts of men. He already knows the future. He can heal lepers, rearrange cells and molecules in their bodies so that they are not lepers anymore. He can give sight to the blind. And of course, being fully divine, death cannot have ultimate victory over him. The grave cannot keep him. Now, it took the church several centuries to be able to fully articulate how this works, but we understand that according to what is called the hypostatic union expressed in the Chalcedonian Creed, our Lord Jesus is one person with two natures, unblended, unmixed, forever. This is what prevents our Lord Christ from ever sinning, from being stained by original sin, is the fact that he is fully divine, as well as being fully human. Think about how remarkable this is. Someone who, on account of a special something that makes them different, never does anything wrong, never sins, never has a sinful thought, nor a sinful desire. When we look at a baby, we're looking at the face of innocence. Yes, for the theologians listening, I understand that even infants are stained by original sin and must be baptized for the removal of the guilt of original sin. This is most certainly true. But a baby has never committed a sin. A baby has never done anything wrong, nor had any sinful desire, any sinful doubt. They've never had a lack of faith in God. Maybe they don't understand what it is they would believe once they're baptized and God has bestowed faith upon them. But the point is, when you look at a baby, you are looking at innocence. Now, for a baby, we see that as being very sweet, very cute. You want to hold that baby. You want to hand that baby to the baby's mother when a baby poops or pukes on you or something like that. Anyway, when we look at a baby, we rejoice because 
this little tiny human package here is pure and is good. Typically we see a baby when we say that that is cute. Now imagine if that baby grew and never lied, never stole, never hit their brother in an unjust way or something like that, never sinned, never blasphemed, never was tempted uh, for sexual immorality or something like that, but grew to be a fully grown man without sin. Now, maybe some people would think about uh, Simon from Lord of the Flies, some innocent but kind of feminine and weak, frail individual that just was just preternaturally innocent in a really weird way. Maybe we think about a mental picture of an adult baby, somebody who can't communicate. Oh, no, 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 no. If a child never sins and has never, ever had any sort of original sin about them, then you are looking at unfallen man, perfect in all of his ways, perfect in his presentation. There is something powerful about this individual. Because a man who grows up and is sinless, entirely with no original sin, no committed sin, no sins of omission, this individual is everything that mankind was supposed to be from the very beginning. The birth of Christ is the birth of the only perfect human being ever. Adam fell. Eve fell. Their children sinned. And you don't have to teach a toddler how to lie, how to steal, how to lash out in anger and sinful rage, etc. But Jesus Christ is the only human being who from conception and from birth and going on into adulthood and going on into the severe temptations in the wilderness never ever, ever had any guilt nor sin. He took our guilt and our sin, truly. But he was never guilty of any of it. He never committed any sin. He never did anything wrong. He is everything, according to his human nature, that mankind should have been from the start. And in Christmas, we remember that. Now, what does it take for a perfect human being to be born. I'll tell you right now, about 4,000 years of pain, about 4,000 years of struggle, 4,000 years cataloged in the Old Testament, which is best characterized as a catalog of dismal human failure. The struggles and the persecution and the pain a battle between good and evil, which during the best of times is a bloody and ugly stalemate. That is what it takes. God promised somebody would show up, a seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, and the serpent knew about this. He warred against it. God promised to Abram that one day his seed, singular, would come and bless all of the families in the entire world. They could 
hear the words of eternal life. The devil knew about this. The enemies of God heard about this and warred against it. God promises one day there will be a king, a king of kings, a savior, a messiah who brings safety to God's people and salvation to them. And the devil hears that. He knows about it and he wars against it. And then God promises a new covenant, not a covenant that is written on stones, but that is living and written on the hearts of men. A covenant that is a person, not an object, not a mere institution. It took 4,000 years of pain and death and war, constant persecution, constant attacks, famines, punishments, occasional little glimpses of blessing, which are only then swallowed up by more turmoil, chaos, and fighting. For 4,000 years, this happens because the devil is warring against this promise of a savior for that long. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the culmination of everything the Old Testament was aiming at. Everything the saints struggled for, seeing the promise from afar off and doing their best to serve God under the persecution of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Why else do we suppose that mankind was tempted and fell so badly that God had to flood the entirety of the world? Somebody had the bright idea of getting mankind to sleep with the quote-unquote sons of God and produce the Nephilim, and it was not mankind just thinking about doing this randomly one day. No, somebody wanted to make mankind so repugnant to God that God would kill all of them. Yet there was a saint. There was Noah. Somebody decided that there should be a flood-proof tower built with all of humanity living and residing around it so that this could happen again and mankind could find a way to become so corrupt that they must be extinguished forever. But God protected the plan of salvation by confusing mankind's language. But that somebody is the devil. Nimrod was a mighty hunter. He was a hunter, not a city planner, not an architect, not somebody with the know-how to create a tower, which even God himself says, oh, well, if they keep going, they're really going to do it. Somebody was out there trying to tempt and inspire and instruct this. The devil has been at war with God since he fell. Somebody had to decide that all of the male children of ancient Israel had to die because the plan of salvation might be frustrated if only we can kill off the ancestors of this Messiah, the seed of the woman, first. Maybe we'll never get to that point if all of the ancestors of the Christ child are dead first. And so the Pharaoh served as an unwitting slave to the devil during this time, and yet God sent a saint, Moses, to help deliver his people and bring them out of their 430 years of slavery, turmoil, and death. And yet the people, once they were out, 
what happens? Somebody decides to start tempting and tempting and tempting them, inviting them to pagan festivals, inviting them to listen to the words of false prophets, inviting them to worship at the feet of stone and clay statues. The devil decided to try to lead as many Israelites astray so that the covenant curses would come on them in full force, meriting the eternal punishment of the Lord our God, and maybe he could just get them all to destroy their whole race, all of the ancestors of our Lord Christ, just dying as God's wrath is poured out fully upon them. But God preserved a remnant who listened to the holy prophets that he sent. And so this goes on and on for 4,000 years. Constant attack constant war between good and evil. And of course, all things happen according to our sovereign Lord's timing. But here on the human level, seeing it, we see four millennia of struggle. And finally, after all that time, all of this culminates into a birth in a manger. Finally, the Deliverer who was promised has arrived for mankind. The Eternal God says, enough is enough. Now is time for me to arrive, to incarnate, and to save people from their sins. And with that human nature, he is also the perfect man. Everything Adam should have been everything that Israel should have been, everything David was supposed to be, everything that Moses should have been but was not. After 4,000 years of constant failure, finally someone comes in who is not a failure, who never fails, never sins, shall complete the mission of the great messianic hope that had been there among the saints for all that time. In Christmas, we celebrate that God kept his promise. In Christmas, we celebrate that all of that struggle, all of that waiting was worth it for those Old Testament saints. And we rejoice that those fulfilled promises apply to us, especially we Gentiles. Now, why would we celebrate something that was good on their end, something that made it worth it for them? Because, well, we're in the same boat. I know, I know I'm going to preach on this a little bit on Sunday, but suffice it to say, we are awaiting the return of Christ the same way the Old Testament saints were awaiting the arrival of Christ, his birth. We are awaiting the final judgment and the return of Christ for our eternal blessedness, our final deliverance from our enemies, the same way that they were waiting for the incarnation. And how does this look? How do we wait for God? Well, we worship him, we sing to him, we love one another. Well, if you ask me, it's the same way we wait in anticipation for Christmas, we sing carols, we sing hymns, we go to church, we remember the promises of God as we light up that Christmas tree, and we demonstrate our love for one another by giving each other gifts. The entirety of Christmas is 
practice for our daily lives throughout the rest of the year, an emphasis on the part of the Christian's life that is waiting for the second coming. During Advent and on Christmas, we get this opportunity to identify with those Old Testament saints, to share their struggle, but also their joy, and to rejoice that God has given us this well, this view of his faithfulness that makes it all worth it. Let us rejoice and be glad, everybody, as we enter this season of Advent and continue on with the steadfast faith of all the saints that has been around for the past mm, 6,000 years or so. Amen and amen.